Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroya.io. Let's do it. All right. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Arroya Office Hours Live. Whether you're an Arroya customer, Arroya curious, or just super passionate about growing and existing in this exciting industry, these weekly sessions are your chance to learn from the experts about crop steering, share cultivation tips and tricks, and network with other growers doing really cool things in this emerging industry. My name is Keisha. I'm going to be your moderator for today's discussion. Just some quick housekeeping before we get started. While we welcome lively conversation, Arroya Office Hours is not the forum for discussing cannabis policy, home cultivation, or complaints about the industry, no matter how valid those are. In order to keep these sessions useful to our community, we thank our attendees in advance for adhering to the following best practices. Arroya Office Hours isn't the time to ask things like, why isn't there an Arroya system for home growers? Are you hiring? Under the regulations in my state, am I legally allowed to insert activity? Or what does Arroya cost? Although if you'd like to book a demo, we would love to talk to you about that. Uh, however, Arroya Office Hours is the time to ask things like, what are some ways to go from manual growing to crop steering with hardware and software? De-leafing is the most challenging task our team has to deal with. Any tips on how to do this more efficiently? This is the data I'm seeing with my grow. Can you help me understand what it means? And what's the difference between water activity and moisture content? So. Now that that's out of the way, if you have any questions, go ahead and type them into the chat at any time. If your question's selected, we'll have you unmute, unmute yourself and ask away. So Scott and Seth, I think we have in the studio today. You ready for our first question from Instagram? Yes, let's do this. Awesome. Okay. Bad Habit wants to know, is it possible to effectively crop steer in 10-gallon pots? Ooh, that is a tough one. Um, and I think 10 gallon pots would typically refer to, um, out, outdoor growing. Um, it's just a guess cause I've never seen, maybe you have Seth, people growing in 10 gallon pots indoors. Not too much these days. It's become <laughs> okay. fairly uncommon as it, you know, it's kind of backbreaking. Okay. So, um, but I have gotten this question before <clears throat> and I've even asked some experts in the field about it and, and got some different opinions, but what's your reaction to that? possible to to crop steer in a 10 gallon pot um well when we're crop steering a big thing we're looking at is controlling that dry back right and if our media is too big it's gonna be really difficult to actually control that mm -hmm. so if we've got a 10 gallon pot um you know I, I guess for reference if you can grow a six foot plant out of a one and a half to two gallon pot how big does that plant need to be in a 10 gallon pot to get the same kind of control on your dry back because we'd rather have it drying back faster and be able to control it with more irrigation than only be able to get it about once a day and sure. have you know very little dry back does it matter what the medium is that that the grower is growing in um i mean there's differences in the media but as far as pot size goes not particularly yeah it's it's just a huge amount of of uh, a volume to deal with and um the only suggestion that i heard that could be helpful here is to look at doing a multi-day dry back um, mm -hmm. to, to feeding the plant um, on a daily basis, but but minimally, and getting that dry back going over multiple days so you do get down to a point where either, it, you know, if we are in natural soil where the uh, water potential or in a, in a soilless substrate in um, the poor water you see gets to the point where the plant is feeling some stress. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that is possible, I've heard, but... Um, that that's more of an advanced technique, and um, and I don't uh, I don't know how effective it's going to be. That's the only way I can think of to to get at that. Yeah, the best way I could describe it is you're going to be running generatively, effectively yep. the whole time because you have to space out your watering so far. It's going to be hard to push that really lush vegetative growth. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's uh, I don't know, um, Keisha, if that's useful, but. Um, one strategy yeah. is to um, is to do multi-day drybacks, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and then and that's also great. always talk about strategy. Yeah, I was going to say it's very important to get a sensor in there because on that ten-gallon pot, your a person's ability to judge how heavy that pot is mixing it up is going to be way less accurate than with the smaller yeah. one, even. Yeah, and and it's also you know the other thing is 
on a pot that big, sometimes it's helpful to have more than one sensor and understand what the root zone really is and then what's going on at each level of the root zone. Um, it's not as simple as just looking at a uh, you know three by six by thirty six uh, slab or or um, uh, or a one gallon or two gallon cocoa uh, bag. It's it's really a totally different mindset. Great. I actually have a question. Speaking of pots, this is a perfect segue. Um, at Guwap Carlos, he wants to know how do you use the solace and plastic pots? Do you poke through them? Ah, yes. I was just at some customer sites last week, and by the way, had a, a, an amazing time learning about different types of indoor and greenhouse growing that some of our customers are doing. Visited six of them last week and, and really learned a lot. And I actually gave some bad advice to a customer on this, and Jason had to correct me. So actually, we'll do a little test, and and uh, and because I told him to drill some holes in the pot and poke the Terrace 12 through the holes. And then Jason kind of made this awkward face like he uh, like he was embarrassed to be seen with me and then told him to do something different. What Do you know what he might have told me, Seth? Um, typically, like, late, or at least lately, the best results we've found is cutting a slot into the side of the pot yeah. with a knife. And, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of looking at maybe figuring out the best jig to use for that to make yeah. it perfect. But cutting a slot that's just wide enough to get all three of those probes in. Yep. And wide enough that you can seat all of them fully into the media so you don't have that air gap. Yeah, and and that's um it, it is a bit is it is a bit unwieldy to go with that um with that round shape with the flat um base of the Taros 12, but that was the advice that Jason gave as well. Cut cut something that will allow you to fully insert the Taros 12 into the to the medium um and don't just do it with a few holes. Mhm. And you know it's important that the that the ends of the tines that are close to the to the base of those of the Taros twelve that they just not be hanging out in air because then they're going to read the air instead of reading the uh, substrate and that's what we don't want. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay, our next question comes from Bud Bros Inc. How many emitters per plant on rock wool, and does it matter for crop steering? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It absolutely does. And this goes back to the to the very fundamentals of um, something that in our quick start guide is called shot size. So you want to mm -hmm. take it from the start, Seth? Yeah. So um, with our emitter setup, what that's going to do is give us a lot more control on metering our shot size. Personally, my favorite is 2.3 gallon per hour per meters per plant. That lets us put it on slow enough, but then we still have the volume that we don't have to run, you know, 15 minutes to get enough water on there for an appropriate shot size. Yeah, and that, that's what I almost always see is two emitters per plant, um, and uh, the uh, and I mean the pressure compensating emitters um, that um, not the kind of octo bubbler uh, mm -hmm. setup. I mean the octo bubbler or um, ways of kind of distributing water over the top of the cube. It's kind of uh, a, a practice I used to see more than I see these days. It's mm -hmm. almost always pressure compensating emitters that are just um, the the stakes and then going into the top of the plant. I think because of the differential in shot size that you would get on something that, that wasn't pressure compensated. Is that right? Yeah, we have a lot more control with pressure compensating emitters. And we know that as long as we put enough pressure or the appropriate amount of pressure through that line, each one theoretically is going to put out the exact same amount. Yeah, And then we can also go, you know, with some of the other ones. If we're looking at, you know, flow rates of one, two, three gallons per hour, going down to that point three is going to give us the control to put, um, you know, shots down to 100 milliliters or less. Yep. When we're in veg steering, our 1% our shot is actually pretty small. So it's really easy to overshoot it and just waste water. Yeah. Yeah. And so control over the shot size is critical. Um, and... The way that you calculate that shot size is actually in the quick start guide um, that Arroyo users get. Um, so, you know, th that's one of the first things you do is calculate, well, what is my shot size? And then you have to understand that the medium that you're using, if you're in a four by four by four cube and you're vegging in it, that's going to give you a certain shot size. And if you put that on top of a slab, that's going to give you a different um, shot size. And then just doing those calculations correctly and being able to 
to really know that those two emitters are going to give you exactly the volume of um, of fertigation liquid that you need. Those are mm-hmm. all key key considerations. Oh yeah, and then I mean the other thing for me that I run into is uh, testing those every run. Go put some drip cups out and see how your emitters yes. are performing because unfortunately they do uh, slowly plug up over time. Generally, and I haven't I haven't found a brand that's not susceptible to that huh. after a certain period of time. Okay. And it makes sense. You're running a lot of salt, suspended solids through these things. And uh, if you think about trying to design something that will hold pressure but allow a small amount of something through, um, anything that's not fully dissolved in the solution is going to be problematic, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to write that down because I want to take a look at whether the substrate data that we're seeing just from the Teros 12 sensor might give us an indication of whether the emitter is getting plugged. Might be something Definitely. we can tease out of the data. We don't do that right now, but um. you, you for sure can because you can look at um, how much you're putting on. So if mm-hmm. you say like I'm trying to go for an eight percent shot right now, um, you know, which is a big shot. But if I'm going to go for that, and then I look at the graph, and wow, I'm only getting two percent, you know, volumetric water content increase, but I'm nowhere near my runoff point. Yeah, that's telling me that my math's not adding up. You know, some yeah. Yeah. emitters are not putting out enough water. Yep, exactly. That that's a really good point. Um, let's see. Um, and and I, uh, uh, I, I do, I did have that experience when I tried to do an experimental setup with a tent at home, Mm -hmm. um, uh, with, with Arroyo was that, um, I set up a trash can that had a pump in it where I mixed up the fertigation solution to the EC that I wanted. And then I had a, an open sprinkler on there that would open a valve. Mm-hmm. And turn the pump on, open the valve, water the plants, and then turn it off uh, whenever I needed to have that happen. But in spite of the fact that I had some nice automation, I did not have a resilient system. And one week when I was on a business trip, all the emitters got plugged and the plants got super stressed. They didn't die because cannabis is kind of a resilient plant, but um, mm-hmm. the quality definitely wasn't where I wanted it to be. So that was that was a learning experience. Oh, yeah. Well, and we all rely on these systems. You know, once you've gone to automated irrigation, I mean, I've, I've been in that situation before. You've got 1,500 plants in a room and your pump goes down. Well, suddenly, uh, yeah, I'd love to fix the pump right now, but I got to go spend three hours watering these plants first. And you're, you're really backed into a rough corner. Yeah. Uh, and that is one thing we always ask people, too, when if they say, hey, I'm interested in your Arroy system, what um, you know, what can it do for me? One of the first questions we ask back is, do you have a reliable drip irrigation, you know, automated drip irrigation system? Because if you don't, especially if you're hand watering plants, maybe Arroyo is not the right fit for, for taking the next step. And we realize systems are expensive. Automation is expensive, but really the expensive thing in the long term is lack of uniformity and lack of control. Mm-hmm. That's a perfect segue into my next question from Instagram. And just a reminder to everybody who's on today's call, if you have any questions, please write them in the t- type them in the chat for a chance so we can get your question answered live. Um, speaking of uniformity, Big Thummy wants to know, how soon do you start feeding a drip? I found it easier to get uniform root by hand water. Um, I wonder, so uh, say the question again, uh, how, how soon do mm-hmm. you start um, drip irrigation start, as opposed to hand watering? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know people who hand water in veg. Um, I mm-hmm. mean, it does, it does happen. And I, I mean, it's, it's just a question of how efficient you want the operation to be. Um, so that is pretty common. I, I see hardly any customers. At, well, I don't know of a single customer uh, of array that hand waters in flour, but um, what's uh, your experience? Yeah, right now I don't think we have any. A few people have, you know, bought the system while hand watering with the intention of building up their facility, and mm-hmm. so we've got a little bit of data on that, and it's still useful. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you just you've got to have that reliable system. And even in veg, you know, you're anytime you're taking away visibility in the root zone and control, you're you're leaving something on the table. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I I don't. I mean, th- there is a root in phase as well that that um, when you're not going to be watering at all, right? Um, you're just, you know, you're, you have the, the medium charged and ready to go mm-hmm. and you're putting those plants on and you want those roots to come down. And I mean, in some cases, you'll go a day without watering. Is that true? Sometimes. Um, usually only a day, though. Okay. For what we preach. I, uh, 
I like to stake everything right there. Mm-hmm. You know, once I transplant over the table, stake it, you're done. You can walk away and then you can watch your, your uh, graph and see when you need to give that like 1% bump right around day two, day mm-hmm. three, and start pushing a little bit of solution through there so we can get a lot of oxygen down in. Yeah, that is, that is a key consideration. It's actually one of the cardinal parameters for growing that we don't measure today, which is um, oxygen in the root zone. Mm-hmm. It's one of the nine things that affects uh, cannabis growth. And it's just something to keep in mind. Um, that is maybe a little bit of a rabbit hole, but uh, most of the customers I t- see try to agitate their fertigation solutions to maintain some level of oxygen in them. Is that is that a common practice? Yeah, absolutely. You don't want that to go stagnant and start growing. I mean, you've, you've created a quite the nutrient solution there. Many different things can grow in there, so you don't really want to have it warm and stagnant, you know? Yeah. Particularly. Yep. And, uh, you know, the nice thing about that, though, is you also don't have to put that much effort into keeping that oxygenated. Just like your fish tank at home, you know, the, the bigger oxygenation for the root zone happens when that drop actually hits the pot, goes down into the media, and pulls air in behind it. Okay, sure. Yeah. And that's that's actually one of the big advantages that going soilless or rock wool has over, say, you know, uh, deep water culture. Oh, I see. So um, so it maybe isn't so much that the agitation may, might just be for the uniformity of the fertigation solution, not so much for the oxygen. Yeah. And that's where you see like aeromixers and other uh, circulation pumps, you know. Yep. A lot of a lot of people will circulate their entire res every 15 to 30 minutes just to keep that fallout from happening on the bottom. Yep. Yep. And uh, sometimes a lot of that stuff can be mitigated through uh, proper mixing technique, too. Sometimes okay. that's the issue when mm-hmm. you have some of those issues. So. Okay. Yeah, that uh, that makes sense. Um, okay, Keisha, what, what else? Uh, what else? Yeah. Ready for the next one. All right. Evil Go Seeds has a question. What is the minimum moisture content for a cube during dryback? Hmm. Well, uh, th- this is a uh, common um, uh, concern that, that we try to address. And the first thing to say is that if you're using stonewall substrate, you will get um, channeling and hydrophobic properties emerging in that uh, stonewall if you drop below 35%. So the absolute minimum for rockwool is 35%. Um, uh, and um, I think that... Um, that cocoa also has a kind of a minimum you'd never want to go under. Is that right, Seth? Yeah, typically we we call that about twenty to twenty five percent. Okay, to stay on the safe side, and and part of that's not so much that you're stressing the plant super hard, but you'll hit a point where you know, like Scott touched on, it's you'll especially with the rock will develop those hydrophobic pockets, and even with the cocoa, you'll develop somewhat of the same thing where you find yourself going back with say a bucket of solution and putting that bag in there till it stops bubbling. Yeah, just because it's running off the top, so you don't want to go too low and. You know, in, in all kinds of agriculture, water is actually one of your biggest crop limiting factors. So, yeah. you know, when you look at, if we look at your water content and I can say, well, if we're calling 40 year bare minimum, that's an efficient bottom end. If you've spent 10 days total at 35 or 36, instead of up at 40 as your bottom, you actually might see, you know, a quantifiable reduction in yield. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's a great point. Excellent. I've got another question here. And just a reminder to everybody who's on today, if you have any questions, type them in the chat. We'll get them answered live. Um, Toddledon wants to know, how do you get mediums to stack EC? Can't seem to get the hang of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. So this is something that does take uh, experience. And the first time that I tried to do it, it was a lot more difficult than I anticipated for a couple of reasons. The first was that I didn't do a good job of actually getting of charging the the stonewall substrate that I was using. Um, and so it wasn't in a good condition when I started to grow. And so I did get some root in. I did get plants that were growing, but um, I, I could never um, keep that water content in the range that I wanted it to even worry about what the EC was. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it was just, it was kind of frustrating. There was a ton of runoff and <laughs> like I had, I had all kinds of issues. Um, so uh, the first point, it, it is difficult to do. Um, the second point, the, the stacking comes from essentially the, the ability of the plant and, and, and stacking is what we would refer to as the pattern in early flower where the top EC that you hit gets higher and higher each time you, uh, you dry back your, your substrate. And that happens because the plant's getting bigger. It's the water use each day is getting higher and higher. 
And then each time it pulls that water out, as it gets more effective at pulling that water out, it concentrates the salts in the, the substrate even more. Is that is that a generally correct? Um, yeah, yeah, that's that's a pretty good description. I think the, the only part you missed there is like when you're trying to stack EC, uh, monitoring your runoff is a huge part of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, every morning in our P1s, we're bringing that up to peak saturation. And then, you know, I notice a lot of people like in veg or in bulking are having trouble stacking EC. Well, in veg, that's where the sensors come in because you hit peak water content in the morning and then we'll go down, you know, three to five percent and then back up maybe two or three and bounce right below that runoff line. So mm-hmm. that way we're not rinsing any salt out of the bottom. Right. And th- that's the key, really, as long as you don't have the water run out of the bottom, you know, that plant uses water and then it leaves salt behind in the substrate. Mm hmm. And then beyond that, it's starting to tailor your nutrient regimen to figure out, okay, what EC do I need to be running in rock wool versus cocoa, which cocoa does have some cation exchange capacity. So when you're stacking in cocoa, sometimes that's a little easier than rock wool. You know, if you're getting more runoff, that cocoa will hold on to that salt a little more. Whereas that rock wool, once you start getting runoff, you're going to really push salt right out the bottom. So if a customer is struggling with this and, you know, they have, they have our system in place, so they do have visibility into what's going on in the root zone do you think um how hard would it be to to give them the advice that would allow them to start seeing success is that hard seth do you think uh no no i don't think it's terribly hard like i said the big thing is watching that runoff and then um what i find a lot of people do you know when they're not getting the stacking results that they want they're changing their feed ec yeah which is not necessarily the safest or easiest way to go about it (laughs) You know, you're, you're really, you're chasing something that you might not ever hit. Yeah. And just understanding, you know, a little bit about those ionic interactions and how well your media actually holds onto that salt. And then realizing that like in rock wool, there, there is no, you know, bond to the media for that salt. It's just the water's gone. So the salt's still there. Yeah. Yeah. And I can say that, um, the best growers, um, the ones that are hitting the highest yields at the highest quality that we work with are feeding at a constant EC for their entire, uh, you know, the, the entire uh, veg and, and flower phase. So Yeah, basically some of them uh, will start off, you know, right out of clone, more closer to that 2.0. Mm-hmm. But usually we like to hit about 3.0 all the way through flower. That's pretty easy to work with. But, mm-hmm. of course, you're going to be adjusting, you know, your uh, nutrient ratios in there. As you go through flower, you're going to be giving more micro boosters a little later. Mm-hmm. Back off on your nitrogen, back off on your CalMag a little bit. But it is a lot easier to stack and monitor your EC when you have a constant feed because you mm-hmm. can start to predict what, okay, what is that runoff going to do in the morning? Yep. I can, ex- I can ex- see an expected drop in EC. It's repeatable every day. Mm-hmm. And now you can predict what's going to happen. Whereas if you just drop your EC, uh, you, you, you got to wait to see after that watering how that affected the root zone. Okay. Yep. Excellent. Okay. Our next question comes from Space Dog Select. What's a good baseline ratio between potassium and calcium? What's on that? Uh, the answer to that question is, I have no idea. <laughs> uh, any, any thoughts? Uh, it, I think that's highly strain dependent. Yep. If, you, if you've got the ability to modulate that, for sure do it. And that's why using like uh, CalMag products or calcium chloride products are really nice because... Um, you have the choice to back that calcium off. Mm-hmm. Some plants are really calcium thirsty. Other strains, you don't really have to supplement much. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of this is evolving too as more and more, uh, I guess, specific nutrient lines come out to address some of these problems, you know. Uh-huh. A lot of these amendments were we're, we're working with non-cannabis specific fertilizers for so many years and finding ways to amend it. Now mm-hmm. the market's kind of turning over to where we have a lot more tailored fertilizer product and now we can just dial for each strain yep yep okay yeah that um that makes sense and and i um i mean what's the best way to note that in the journal you know if you're making changes and you want to see what effect it has on a specific strain how would you do that i i would go take pictures of that strain okay in note format and start looking at i mean at least that's what i have customers do like hey take a picture of your plant yep and we've we've still got to look at plant health look for any symptoms of either disease or deficiencies and then go from there. And, you know, one of the best things you can actually do is get a leaf tissue analysis. I see. Okay. And then yeah. you can start strain to strain looking at, okay, this one wants a lot more nitrogen. This one needs more calcium and yep. then do that tissue analysis a few times throughout your growth cycle. So you know at what points like, okay, 
I can take a new leaf later on and start to see that, all right, this new growth is very calcium deficient or right. very, you know, phosphorus deficient, whatever. And then you can start to tailor your nutrient regimen to match your plant's needs throughout its cycle. Okay. Yep. Um, yeah, that, uh, that makes sense. Um, I wonder, um, do you know of any uh, tissue analysis labs? I mean, and I assume they have to be in specific, in the state where you, you know, where you're growing. Um, do, do you ever get requests from customers about that? Um, I do. And yeah, it's, it's highly state to state. Okay. There's, you know, state to state, different places you can send it. Are, are um, there some in California though? I, there are off the top of my head. I can tell you that. Okay. I have to go check some. So we might, we might have some, some references on that if people are. Yeah. If interested. people reach out with email for sure. It is, that. you know, it, it is, uh, something that some of the more sophisticated growers are doing is that, uh, that tissue analysis and looking at big ag, this is kind of par for the course for a lot of, of crops. I know yep. they do it a lot in potatoes, for example. Oh um, yeah. Potatoes, and, wheat. I mean, if you, if you look at agronomic studies, that's like one of the core foundations of like trying to figure out, you know, any improvement in fertilizer regimes, like that, that's where you get your data on actually figuring out what the plant is deficient. in. I can, I can see spots on the plant or, you know, necrotic leaf edges, anything like that. And know that it means certain things. Yep. But quantifying what I have to do to fix it, I need that test. Yep. Okay. So let's just really quick um, show in the um, software how you do that. So I'm going to go in here to our demo uh, screen. And um, this is just a demo facility that we have set up. Seth's point about taking pictures is super easy if you go... Um, and look at a harvest group that you have growing. So we'll just go into this harvest group we have here. These are all the plants that are in there. Uh, these are the four strains that exist. Um, if we go anywhere on this uh, chart, we can add a plus and uh, we can add a note. And if we do that, we can add a photo onto that. And that allows me to go in and, and select a photo from file um, and up, upload it to the journal entry here and then once you do that your photos are available in um the analytics um section of the uh of the tool although there aren't any pictures in here right now for this one but here's where they would be um and you can even just um in addition to adding pictures you can take notes as well and and say well this is what i'm seeing with this plant um and um you know i just upped the the ratio of this type of uh, of element in the fertilizer today, for example. So yep. uh, you can do that. Absolutely. And getting it, you know, into Arroyo or, you know, the same place you keep all, all your other data is crucial because I, I can definitely say I've got plenty of notebooks out there that have never been entered into a computer and yeah, I'll look into it. There's some interesting stuff, but man, I, I don't have time to cross-reference uh, piles and notebooks from yeah. five, ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah, there and there are uh, there are lots of tools in here that uh, are available and can be helpful to people as they grow. In fact, Keisha, do we have time to do a couple of tool tips? Um, because I think there's yeah. there's a few fun things here. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, one of the ones that I absolutely love uh, is the ability to as you're making changes to you know changes to the schedule, changes to tasks, changes to um the alerts in here or the the length of the different phases um keep in mind that when you do this on a harvest group you are changing this harvest group you're changing the schedule you're not changing the recipe but if you find that this is really successful for these types of plants that you're going you can go up here and save this entire thing as a recipe which i think is brilliant i i think this is a great feature most people don't even know that it exists but if you found that you had a ton of success and you just want to do it similarly next time, save that as a recipe and use it. What, what do you think, Seth? Do, do very oh. many people know about this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. But uh, a lot of times they'll just they'll use that same recipe for so long and never go back and change it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's 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 a wonderful tool. What I love to do, too, is, you know, while you're going through any particular harvest or uh, growth cycle, You've got that recipe going and make some changes based on, you know, what you did different this time. So yep. if you're looking at it and said, okay, we actually, the, this round, these particular plants we have are really stretchy. Okay, we're going to run that generative phase early on 
Yep. You know, may, maybe even four or five weeks because they're yep. stretching like crazy. I want to mark that down. So every time I run these strains, I'm going to run, you know, the tall recipe on those ones or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you can, mm-hmm. you can make that, um, you know, that early flower. So let, let's say that these were the actual plants you were, you were um, using uh, and growing, you could add more tasks, you could create more um, targets, you could change the duration of the of the uh, generative phase, for example. All of those things, that would change your schedule in here. And if you saved it, it would also change the the recipe. So, so it would mm-hmm. update your recipe and allow you to, to improve it as you go along. Um, one, let's see, a couple other things that are top of mind. If I go back in here and we're just looking at the data for a particular um, for a particular range, and this is dummy data, so I wouldn't get too excited about it, but um, uh, yeah, so we can see here some plants drying back and some ECs. Notice a couple of things on here. First of all, these are displaying bench uh, averages in terms of EC and water content. Um, one tool that that uh, some people use, but uh, and uh, no exists. Let's see. Actually, it's not in here. How would I do a dryback? Is that is that Just available on this page? Or? Go to the room dashboard. Oh, uh, okay. And then uh, there. Which one? This one. Slower load for a sec. That one right there. Yeah. Okay. Our hmm. Internet's a little slow in Washington today. I think. Yeah, we are having a, uh, some internet issues. Yeah, that's not loading. Um, well, actually, let's do let's do a different one first. Um, let's go in here and um, look at uh, the harvest group again. You can do this in rooms as well. Uh, one of the really basic settings is uh, that you can use for diagnostics is just looking at, at averages versus individual sensors. Mm-hmm. So if you go in here, you can say, actually, I want to show a room average. Um, so that that is the fat line that you see here. If you want to, you can also do individual readings which uh, for the individual sensors, which can be done in this way. And you see there's way more data points here, but each individual sensor with its serial number is on here. If yeah. you see an outlier, uh, outlier that's really um, just way out there, super dry, for example, yep. there probably is an issue with that particular plant, like maybe an emitter fell out. Uh, we've, we've heard of that happening before. Oh, yeah. Um, so you can go and look at this. Look at the individual sensor data. And um, besides just, you know, a, a uh, emitter falling out or something like that, um, what what might you what's uh, what might you use individual sensor data for, Seth? Uh, so there's a few things I like to do. If I've got a you know pretty high sensor density in a room, what I do is when I'm assigning those, I actually and so the serial number name the sensor oh, okay, with the sure. geographic location. So when I'm looking at that, I can go, oh, there's an outlier. Ah, it's in zone four yeah. in the back. That's a nice tip there. But what, when you start looking at these, you can start to see some patterns. Like, um, you know, if you've got air, a lot of airflow across the room, you're going to see those pots in the front drying down faster than the ones, right, in, you know, right. in the middle. Uh, the ones in the back might not ever dry down nearly as much. So mm-hmm. you can start to parse out those differences and then work on, you know, resolving issues with your microclimate. Yep. You yep. Know? Yeah. Another, another thing um, that I like to look at when seeing the individual sensor da- data is the uniformity. Um, so yeah, looking for anomalies and hotspots and things, but you know, in general, uh, how well are, is, uh, are these, uh, you know, is my drip system doing it, providing the same amount of water to all my plants at the same time? Oh, yeah. And if you see a huge range in here, you know that maybe there are uh, issues with your, with your drip system. If you see a really tight range and this is, as I said, fake data, mm-hmm. but if this were real data, you'd say these guys know exactly what they're doing because their other plants are doing the exact yeah. same thing at the same time. Um, then you uh, then you can say, well, we do have uniformity. We do have predictability in our systems. Exactly. Okay. Um, let's see. I'm going to stop presenting. Okay, so what other uh, questions um, do we have? Yes. Oh, we have someone on the call who actually just posted a question. Jay, you want to go ahead and unmute yourself and, and ask? Uh, sure. So uh, we've been getting like uh, feed water testing, runoff water testing, and tissue testing. Mm-hmm. And we've noticed that in certain, with certain cultivars, our runoff pH is getting high, like close to 7 or 6.8 in a lot mm-hmm. of them. Um, the 
the tissue tests all look good. Is there any reason to be concerned or like any improvements I can make? I dropped my feed pH going in to 5.5 down from 5.8, um, okay. but I don't want to go any lower than that. Yeah, I, I think you're, you know, you're, you're right to be worried, but I don't think you should worry too much. Dropping your feed pH is about all you're going to be able to do about that. You could change the EC with your feed, but that's going to make things less predictable at the moment. So I would watch your plants and just look for signs of toxicity at first. And one of the bigger things that's going to be a problem there is that probably means that plants pulling in a lot of your micros. So, you know, being that you end up with a higher pH in the root zone, you might have to supplement certain nutrients more because they're not as plant available. They're um, staying in solution and not being uptaken by the plant. Yeah. So that's, that's your okay, biggest thing you. to watch out for. Yeah. Any follow-up question on that, Jade? Is that, is that answer? Is that, um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that, that definitely answers my question. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have like um, zone-specific feeds. I just feed to the whole room with the same uh, like nutrient mm -hmm. solution, fertigation solution. So it might be a little tougher for me to resolve, but and, you know, I think until I start seeing a real issue, I don't want to be you know, hand-watering specific zones or anything like that with different feeds. For sure. And, you know, with micro supplements, a lot of times the, uh, the range between what the plant needs and where it's toxic is incredibly wide. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times you can actually, you know, try to supplement what you're finding with your tissue analysis that some of those plants need without necessarily being toxic to the others. It's just running by them, essentially. Um, is, is there anything okay. you're observing uh, in, in the plants um, that that would concern you or is it just the the seven uh ph in the in the runoff that that is an kind of an anomaly no it's just the high runoff they're actually mm -hmm. some of the best looking plants in the room yeah at, at the end of the day don't you know don't ever discount like <laughs> your eyes and you know your judgment of plant health like if you've been doing this a while you know when a plant is healthy vigorous when it's growing good you know don't don't just discount that the next step is finding out like, okay, that seems to be very tolerant of that pH, seems to like it. Maybe we can try to figure out why. But even if we can, at least we can repeat that if that's what the plant likes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Awesome, Jade. Thank you so thank much you. for that question. Yeah, absolutely. If you have anything else, anytime, please type it in the chat. Uh, that goes for everyone else who's on the call today. But I do have another question from Instagram. Terp Cowboy is asking, how much light is too much? Can you run super high PPFD without sacrificing terps? There's definitely an upper limit. Okay. Uh, sure. I, I, this is, I think this is a fascinating question. So, so uh, uh, share, share our, your thoughts with us. So, so. Oh, I, I was going to say there's a, you know, a surprisingly high amount of light people are able to run these days that really impresses me, but no matter what there uh, is. And what would you call that in terms of PPFD? What do you call high? High? Oh, yeah, when you're hitting 11, 1,200, 1,250. Okay. You know, mm -hmm. some guys are pushing even up to 14, 1,500. And that's probably about the limit of what I'd ever try to push. Okay. Because of terps or because of yield? Uh, generally because of yield. Really? You're gonna okay. get some. You're going to get some bleaching, and then you're going to have some other problems with trying to maintain your leaf surface temperature. Um, you're, you're really overloading the plants at a certain point. And, and here we're talking about LEDs, um, or are we talking about HPS as well? Generally LEDs, because with the HPS, the heat becomes very unmanageable. So and you burn. You'll, yep, you, you yep. got to keep the light so far away from the plant that you, it's really hard to actually achieve 14 or 1,500 micromoles at your canopy. Isn't it also dependent on the CO2 concentrations and what you're able to enrich? Yep, absolutely. Okay. Yep. So, so you should, I mean... Uh, cause I saw a graph once that essentially showed that enrichment and, uh, light intensity that, that the, uh, crop yields hit a maximum, um, of, I think it, it was around maybe a thousand or, or 1100, um, PPFD with no CO2 enrichment. Mm. But then that maximum is quite a bit higher if you are, uh, you know, carefully and accurately enriching with CO2. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, to think about it, that ambient air around us is anywhere from, you know, depending on how close to a city you live or where you're at, four to 800 PPM. Mm -hmm. Well, if you can just run a straight 1200 the whole way through, you're eliminating another one of those uh, yield limiting factors. You yeah. know, the plant needs so much heat, so much water, so much CO2, and so much light 
to to grow to yeah. its potential. So we just want to eliminate any shortcomings along the way. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, okay. Keisha, what else do you have for Ready us? Ready for our next one? Yes. Leland Dowling is asking, what should my EC be at in my root zone and runoff compared to my feed EC? Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's going to depend on what your goals are. And it, so mm -hmm. it's important to start off with a, with a statement of intent. And this is, this is something that data allows us to do is, is the grower says, well, this is what I'm trying to accomplish. And then using data to determine whether or not uh, he or she is accomplishing that. I, I, think, um, I think that's the critical thing. But if he's talking about a certain phase of growth, mm -hmm. um, I mean, let, let's just go with, um, let's just say he's in bulking. You know, okay, so, mm -hmm. he's, so he's trying to bulk on the bud sites that exist on the plants um, after that um, early flower phase. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of mid-flower. What, what should he be expecting to see in terms of the in situ, the, the root zone EC, and then the runoff? Uh, so root zone EC, you know, throughout the day, your goal is to be within that four to eight zone, but you can easily go up much higher just okay. as the water dries back. And typically your runoff is just going to match basically what your root zone data says at your uh, peak saturation because what you're doing is just pushing nutrient solutions straight through. Yep. Yep. Well, so let's say, for example, that, that he's running kind of in the high range for, for vegetative bulking, and he's up in, like, say, the seven range. Mm -hmm. um, and then his PDC is three, just for an example. Yep. If he goes in and gets a lot of runoff, he can, he can push that EC in situ down quite a bit. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, when we go to veg bulking, I mean, that's actually a challenge for some people is to keep their EC up. Yep. Because they're not able to closely monitor and see when their different zones are getting runoff. So they might say, okay, well, this zone on my first P2, I, this one's not supposed to get runoff. But mm -hmm. because of various different factors, it is. Well, now you're not going to be building EC. Each one of those P2s is just going to continue to rinse your salt out of the median. Yep. Yep. And then, and then you're too low. Yep. Absolutely. And then you get in that range of being too low. So, so it really does depend on, on the uh, phase of growth that you're in. Um, what you what you should expect to to see and um, you know for example um, in your P1s in generative you're you're uh, putting each of those shots in mm -hmm. in in your P1 and eventually building up to the point that you're going to run off right correct and then once you run off you're done you stop and then you you just drive back for the remainder of the day is that is that true yep in an ideal world when your uh, plant size and media size is perfectly matched. Um, you, you can do that okay. even later if you've got, uh, and I've been in this situation before, you know, you've got like a one gallon or a one and a half gallon bag and a monster six or eight foot plant coming out of it. Mm -hmm. It's hard to go generative because you got to keep putting water on it all day yeah. <laughs> to keep it from just getting too dry. Yeah. So one of the solutions there would be, you know, we're going to hit it with the P1s and then right at the end of the day, uh, you know, we're going to still stop our waterings about an hour, two hours before lights off, but we'll hit it back with not all the way up to peak saturation, but if we had a really hard dry back last night and we hit, you know, on Rockwell, let's say we got down to 35% or something, I'm going to give it like a 10, 12, well, it's probably two, 5% shots or a 10% shot towards the end of the day to bring it back up to keep us in that safe zone, but still maintain that spacing. That way we apply generative stress. Yeah. Yeah. And I do want to go back to this concept of, a, of intent, of grower intent, because it, it's, it's really hard to, um, to be consistently successful without that that statement and saying like this is what I'm trying to do this is what I want to do so um, saying that you want to drive plants generative for example that that's a statement of intent and then looking at your situation like what what is my feed EC yep. what's my EC in situ how big are my plants what's my what's the volume of my substrate there are so many different permutations there I know guys that are growing in states that are limited to plant count okay yep. so so they're they're not limited on square footage they got they they're limited on the number of plants they can grow. They're trying to grow massive plants, yeah, because absolutely. that's the way that they can achieve more yield and be more profitable. And so their strategies are going to be different than the places where you're strictly growing according to square footage. Their plant densities are going to be different. You know, the morphology, maybe even the the types of light, but certainly um, the way that they're driving growth in those plants mm -hmm. is is going to be totally different. Is that is that true? Absolutely, yeah, for sure. I mean, especially when you start to look at uh, states that limit plant count. I mean. 
if I've got a given square footage, but I'm only allowed, you know, allowed to grow six plants, yeah. say in a tent, well, ideally, if I had a two by eight foot tent, for example, and I know this isn't really a huge commercial one, but if I'm in there, I want to stuff that thing full of plants and flip them small. Yeah. You know, uh, get that fastest turnaround time. Yep. Well, if I'm limited to plant count for six, I've got to change my whole, whole idea of what I'm going to do. Yeah. And that's, and that's why uh, growers tend to be specialists at, at different types of growing. Absolutely. Um, and we see people doing tiered growing, for example, where, mm-hmm. the, where the strategy is to keep those plants small and get them through quick. You know, it's, yep. about, it's about velocity and getting plant counts through. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's using, it's using that, the building that they created uh, a little bit more efficiently because they get two decks in, in, the, in mm-hmm. the room. But you can't, you know, you can't be growing six-foot plants if, if you've only got, um, you know, if you've got two tiers and they, yeah. they only go up to four feet, you're, it's just going to be a mess. Well, and, you know, a big thing I like to look at is uh, real estate. Yeah, that that plant. How much square footage is it taking up, and how long is it in your facility? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, if you're not limited to plant count, well, two week veg, flip them small, higher plant density. That's yeah. the way you're going to get crops through faster, make more money. If you are plant limited, okay, well, if we're stuck with having to have a four or a five week veg to achieve the plant size we need, um, that's just what it is, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's why I mean that's why growing is so interesting. Is there's so many different ways to approach it. Um, and uh you know different different strategies but getting back to the original question the the feed ec the substrate ec and then the runoff ec that'll just depend on um on this the uh specific phase of growth that the plant is and what you're trying to to accomplish is there anything in uh runoff so uh, so we don't uh array doesn't have a system that just tests that runoff uh ec mm-hmm. and a lot of people are doing that manually and then just adding it to the to the uh, journal, mm. um, is there is there anything that would specific? You know, is there anything in that runoff EC number um, that that you is there a trend that might concern you if you saw it? Um, so we we actually do have a product that can measure that the ES two now. Oh yeah, yeah. okay. It's, it's a plumbing issue <laughs> there, yeah, so you, you got to I mean, plumb it do, into a you trap. You do have to, yeah, you have to have it in a trap. That yeah. that is true. But typically, users are using that for feed EC, and yeah. that's a great tool. For monitoring your FDC, especially for something like a dosatron went out, okay, yeah. and then and then the room's not getting the right fertilizer, that's, just kind of a hey, send me an alert when that happens. But yes, it's true. You can if you put it in a trap, have the ES two there. That's exactly the first thing I look for in uh, runoff. Actually, is like okay. if you've got an injection system, and then suddenly your runoff numbers are going super high. Yeah. Although your you know root zone AC may not be going super high because you're getting yeah. a lot of runoff, that would be a good indicator that your injector's not working and you're massively over fertilizing. Yep. Yep. You know, or you know, same thing with having an inline EC sensor in your feed. It's really nice to just have a monitor on both ends. So I mean, tank mixing mistakes happen. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, equipment fails, people fail. Oh, even you know, even like uh, sometimes I, I've heard horror stories about the supplier. You know, drops drops fertilizer you know the dry fertilizer for mixing and it's mislabeled yeah you know it, that that uh, kind of stuff can happen it, it, it does it does happen so, so oh yeah you, you do you have to be careful bad batches i mean it's it's all out there it's still normal business <laughs> yeah. yeah uh so it's good to ha- that's especially on something as critical as fertilizer it's good to have like a belt and suspenders type approach absolutely yep okay keisha how about maybe right. one more yeah. what do you what do you think Okay, here, this is a good one from Dutchman's Thumb. They want to know, what is the best way to reduce stretch with crop steering? Um, well, apply generative stress. Get a little drought stress in there. Encourage the plant to pack on more bud sites and not stretch as much. Yeah. Yeah, and, I, you know, for anybody who, I mean, we just talked about that, that uh, two, two-tier growing. I've even mm-hmm. seen three tiers out there. Uh, I mean, <laughs> be hard to maybe work in that facility uh, and go up on ladders all day to do your plant pruning activities and stuff. But I mean, I have seen it and um, yeah. And I've heard that, um, you know, really driving those, those plants generative will reduce the the plant size. And also I've heard that um, I'm not a specialist on this, but that uh, the frequency, certain frequencies of light can affect morphology as well. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's part of why we try to go for, uh, you know, traditionally like you have the metal halide or the CMH for veg and then your HPS for flower. Well, part of what we want to do is simulate, you know, at the end of the year, the sun's 
coming through more of the atmosphere to hit us in the fall yeah. mm-hmm. when it's ripening. So we get a little bit more of that far red. Mm-hmm. And that's going to help the plant ripen up. The plants are also adapted to that. They have different, uh, I want to say beta carotene, but that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> Several different molecules inside that target different uh, wavelengths. Okay, sure. Like inside your chloroplast. So when we hit that far red, that's helping the plant make not just chlorophyll, but also different metabolites and build terpene production. Yep, yep. Yeah, um, so, so def- definitely... Um, what's happening in the root zone, your irrigation strategies can help you to, um, to, uh, uh, intentionally control that, that plant morphology. Mm -hmm. Um, I do want to say one other thing, um, before we finish up, which is that I just pulled some plants into a tent. I even have some tomato plants, which technically I don't know anybody who's using Arroyo on tomatoes right now. Besides Seth, okay, so Seth, <laughs> everything Seth, I grow. <laughs> hopefully, Seth can give me some pointers here. I just pulled them into the tent. I just, I just dropped the little, you know, the little kind of seedlings into into some cubes and started mm-hmm. watering it. And uh, and I did do a much better job of getting the stone wall all saturated. Uh, for I I left them in the the solution for a full day and yep. And they're they're everything is going much better right now. Maybe next week we can actually drop some data on the the screen and show what's happening. I'm having a little trouble getting the humidity as high as I want. Um, But, um, you know, for anybody who's maybe struggling with keeping everything in their garden exactly where they want it, seeing my data will be a real shot in the arm for them because they'll see how bad I'm doing. (laughs) Um, And uh, it'll it'll serve as a motivation for them. So uh, so let's let's do that maybe next week. Excellent. Thank you so much, Seth and Scott. Great conversation. Thanks to everyone who submitted a question. Um, All of you, thank you so much for joining us for Arroyo's office hours this week. You know, this is your time. Any questions that you have about Arroyo, how it can be used to help improve your cultivation and production process, or any topic that you'd like covered in a future office hour session, let's talk about it. Um, Let us know in the chat. Shoot us an email at support.arroyo at metergroup.com or shoot us a DM via Instagram. We definitely want to hear from you. We record every session. We will email everyone uh, a link to this session uh, who came today. And uh, it will also be on the Arroyo YouTube channel. So please do like, subscribe, and share while you're there. And if you find these conversations helpful, uh, share with your network and spread the word. And we will look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Keisha. Yep, thanks. Thank you. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io.